This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, one of the challenges for an effective nonprofit leader right now is getting the right information so you can make solid financial decisions to help your organization thrive. Well, to do this, you need the best accounting and donation software. Researching, learning, and maintaining software can get really costly. So let me save you some time and money. Aplos just might be the solution you're looking for. Aplos is made specifically for nonprofits to manage fund accounting, donations, and your people. So go to nonprofit.aplos.com to see how it works and get your 15-day free trial. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Most of my guests on this show are working with or on the boards of nonprofits who serve within the United States. However, we have had several guests who have started and or lead nonprofits that are globally based and serve in countries throughout the world, outside of the U.S. Well, my guest today leads a global nonprofit that serves specifically in war-torn areas of the world where especially children are at risk of extreme poverty and hunger. Steve Gumer is the founder and president of the global NGO Partners Relief and Development. Steve has worked alongside children, women, and families in some of the most impoverished areas of the world for decades. Partners Relief is responding in these regions to a variety of pressing global issues such as food shortages, human trafficking, COVID-19, and much more. And he's calling from Norway today, and I'm really glad to have him on the show. Steve, thanks for being on the show today. You know, your organization is doing remarkable work in some of the most challenging places in the world. First, would you tell us more about all that you do at Partners and give us a snapshot of how things are going globally during this worldwide pandemic we are all facing? Yeah, thanks, Rob, and thanks for having me on. Uh, Partners Relief and Development, the team that I lead, works. Our criterion for where we choose to work is where politics or Political complexity and violence prevents children from having the basic things they need. So our team looks for generally war zones where kids are being denied those things or have no access to those things because of the conflict around them. That's what's led us to these places that you see on our website like Yemen and Syria and Myanmar. And the way these things develop, they evolved out of a commitment that we made to one little girl back in 1994. My wife and I were in a refugee camp on the Myanmar-Thailand border, and we were, we were, we made friends with this woman who was a teacher in one of the refugee camps. And the pro-democracy soldiers that serve on the Myanmar side of the border in the ethnic states found one survivor from a village that was attacked. Um, and they took that one survivor, carried her to the refugee camp that we were meeting this woman in, and asked that woman to be the foster mother for this little girl. We, we they, The little girl was four or five years old, but they don't know her exact age because there's no paper. It's a, it's, it was in a hill tribe village. So that woman asked us if we would care for or help support that little girl She was a widow with two toddlers who had her own crazy story of, you know, a denial of justice and losing her wealth and job and 
privilege and um, ending up without a passport in a refugee camp. Uh, and when she asked us to help with that first little girl, we said, we, you know, how much will it cost? Calculated the cost and it was um, about $30 for a whole year of, of the basic things that that little girl needed. So we committed to that first child and all of the work we do now in relief and development, all the work that my team has um, evolved to embrace where, you know, there's there's this um, this well in war zones or where violence and political complexity prevents these families from having what they need to survive. All of it evolved from that first commitment to that little girl. 26 years ago. One of your stated values for your organization is that children shouldn't suffer because adults are fighting. And in fact, I really thought that was a powerful way to state it on your website. In fact, there are currently 415 million children, I understand, who are living in conflict zones worldwide. Now, because of that, your organization is willing to serve children directly affected by war and oppression. So talk about how you came to that mission. And you already mentioned, you know, you met this girl. Uh, but how did you take that one experience and then really grow that? And obviously, you've got a large organization that's in many different countries. Um, how did you really grow that mission, start the organization? And what have been the results so far? In the beginning, it really had to do with my wife and I and our notion of what it meant to um, be connected to the people of the world and people who suffer and how it related to our faith and um, wanting to have integrity with what we understood our sort of moral mandate was, um, was part of what drove us to get more and more involved. And it was children that, that really grabbed us on an emotional level and made us stay determined in those early days, despite, you know, financial and a myriad of setbacks, we stayed committed because you you can't really commit, you know, to an orphan child of war and then walk away. You can't say that, for example, God loves that child and then turn around and leave. So we stayed involved not only because of the violence and the trauma that these kids have had to endure, um, we also stayed because we felt we we needed to be a part of that story, that this could possibly answer the question we all ask, which is, why are we here? And um, it turns out that it did. So as we as we stayed involved and stayed committed and things grew, we also attracted, a, you know, um, other people to join us. And that today we, we have 55 full time staff and a few hundred local project leaders that we work closely with to do the things that we do all focused on the primary needs of children. And I'll just add one thing. You, you said the number that is accurate, 415 million uh, children who, 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 um, you know, live in a, a state of, of denial of fundamentals or, or our refugees are displaced. The number is actually much higher depending on how you count conflict. Um, Yemen, for example, right now, seven million children aren't in school. That's Yemen alone. And they're not in school because of, because of a complex conflict. And that, for example, is one of the reasons that we push in as hard as we do to get involved in a place like, like Yemen. Again, Yemen has 
uh, roughly right now, 2 million children who suffer the impact of malnutrition, acute malnutrition, which um, at the later stages, and this is already happening, leads to wasting, which is the body consuming its own fat and, and muscle in order to stay alive. So the motivation has never really changed for us that children shouldn't have to suffer because adults are fighting or shouldn't have to suffer because of a war that they didn't start or even understand. That would still characterize what what we at Partners say is our why. Now, well said, and, and I really appreciate and admire your uh, desire to help uh, you know, these millions of children. And it sounds like that uh, if you really start, depending on how you define what an area is in terms of a conflict zone, it sounds like it could be even more children that are affected by these things worldwide. Uh, now, what are, the other thing I was impressed with, you have three primary areas uh, for your organization. You first have the emergency relief, and then you have sustainable development, and then you have strengthening families. These are the three key areas that you focus on. And my guess is there's a lot of like overlap between these three areas. And to be successful, I'm sure you have to be very intentional with each one. In fact, you know, there's been other people on my show before, and there's, of course, a lot of articles and books written about this, that, you know, there's certainly a need for emergency relief, certainly in conflict zones and, you know, crisis situations that happen. But long-term success, you know, really, truly empowering a community uh, to become over time, to become independent, and these families to get back on their feet and become independent eventually. I know that's the stated goal. How do you hand off these emergency relief efforts to move into a sustainable development and then into strengthening families. In other words, like a lot of terms used here is uh, how do you provide a continuum of care for your clients? Uh, maybe talk about that a bit. Yeah, thanks. That's, those are important questions. And, and they're ones that my team talks a lot about. Um, relief is something that we provide during acute crisis. It's not something we want to be involved in long term, obviously, because it, it, it means that the people we're helping are under fire or are displaced and, and the, the, the means of survival that they depend on are very thin. Um, in all of the places that we've committed to working, even with that value, it turns out that relief work is is really essential on a periodic or perennial basis because these regimes where there are totalitarian dictatorships where there are you know massive um, complexity between the militias that are at war uh, and the anti-government organizations that are trying to stay alive and resist them where allegiances change depending on what's contested there's just a constant state of violence. And, and if you look at a country like Syria, that's exactly what you'll see. So we work in the area of relief through local contacts and relationships with organizations and even monasteries and churches that, that exist in those places. We build relationships with them. We train them on best practice and work on all the basics of anti-corruption and so forth. And then we um, we fund the provision of relief in a life or death survival scenario. As soon as that is done or 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 wanes, then our our next step is towards uh, sustainably getting helping people get sustainably on their feet. Um, our go-to projects are education and the restoration of healthcare, but. In, even in those projects, we're looking at 
the sustainability issue. I'll just give you an example. In Karen State, in Myanmar, there through the 90s and, and up until the mid-2000s, you had active, ongoing, protracted conflict that required acute relief aid. Since the regime put a suit on and Suu Kyi was elected to be the president, the, the violence is still a menace. It still happens on occasion, but there is less of it. And because of that, then people's attention are, are not focused so much on how to survive the day, but how to develop our lives so that we can survive the year, the month, the week, the month, the year. Um, and our team helps with agricultural and animal husbandry and cottage industry interventions to help those families get on their feet. These are small, small scale, not infrastructure, uh, community development projects. Aside from focusing on the families, um, we also have, you know, this focus on education. And what we've been doing for the past four years is instead of what we had done before, which is start schools and, and form a consortium with the stakeholders and, you know, support those schools each month. Now we have a development team that goes in and uh, provides a, a capital investment so to the school board. The school board, in, even at the village or tribal level, uh, loves this idea because they don't want to be you know, getting handouts every week. They, they, have, they, they want the dignity of having cared for their own community as well. And so our team helps them uh, audit their resources and, and figure out how a capital investment could earn money uh, and that that money managed by the school board could pay for the teacher and school supplies and even the upkeep of the structure that the school is held in. Um, right now, we have uh, 100 schools in Sean State, 98 of which are fully self-supporting, and they've even paid back the capital. They want to pay it back. So in every location that we work in, we're, we're applying the principles of community development sustainability, and also on a deeper level, just human dignity to stand alongside these communities and help them walk out of the destitution that war has created. Well, one of the challenges for an effective nonprofit leader right now is getting the right information so you can make solid financial decisions to help your organization thrive. Well, to do this, you need the best accounting and donation software. Researching, learning, and maintaining software can get really costly. So let me save you some time and money. Aplos just might be the solution you're looking for. Aplos is made specifically for nonprofits to manage fund accounting, donations, and your people. So go to nonprofit.aplos.com to see how it works and get your 15-day free trial. Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to make sure you knew about how to get some more great content. When you go to our website, just look at the top right section of the homepage under the words subscribe. 
you can simply type in your email address and then you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to getting great access to some superb content, you'll get the latest podcast shows right to your inbox. Now, this way you'll never miss any of the interviews or content on this show. If you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email us. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Your stated goal is to really move from emergency relief to more sustainable, you know, support. And one of the key ways you do that is through strengthening families. But it's hard, you know, it's messy. It's not an easy A plus B equals C because you're in, particularly you and what you are doing, your organization is doing, you're working with zones of the world that are under conflict and that's very dangerous and and constantly shifting and changing. So anyway, I'm, I'm sure it's very challenging. And that's a great segue to this next question I want to ask. You know, this podcast is all about leadership. And with this podcast being focused on leadership, could you share a bit about the biggest challenges you are facing right now in leadership and how are you tackling them? When COVID really halted our ability to travel to the places that we work, it also stopped what was a routine of assessment, site visits, and reporting. So we have, you know, we have... uh, we have project and program leaders who are part of that process that are full-time staff. A lot of the people who run projects on the ground are, are um, people who live in those communities that we have uh, built a relationship with or their community-based organizations or, um, or even um, medical or education uh, professionals. And part of our process has been for one of us, of you know eight or nine different nationalities on our team to to fly to that location and negotiate a way into where that place is if possible for like I said assessment site visit and um, and then reporting on progress. The biggest challenge since COVID is completely reimagining how we do that, learning not just how to uh, trust the the strength of the relationships that we've built, but learning um, a healthy way of communi- communication and accountability that, that doesn't depend on one-on-one visits. Everything now that we're doing since March has been done through um, internet media, and we haven't had access to, you know, these, especially these these um, conflict areas. And, and um so our biggest leadership challenge is, is learning how to uh, continue to lead and work and manage in those dangerous and, and unstable environments with the added problem of coronavirus uh, and do it without one-on-one meetings. We've learned a couple things, Rob. Um, one is that these people that we've built relationships over the years who who risk their lives to do a lot of the work they do are, are, are just simply amazing people. And they are, they are, they are, they have gained a sense of dignity by being aligned with us because they can actually do something now for the people who suffer, who they have access to. And in fact, most of the time it is their own people. So by, by working closely with them and and re retooling how we interact with them on social or on internet on Zoom and Skype and WhatsApp, uh, we we have found that these people are amazing. They have integrity. Um, 
a lot of the site visits that we would have done and not uncovered anything, but but great work. Um, uh, it turns out something like 90% or more are were really unnecessary. Um, and because of the the way that that we're interacting with them through internet and um, and you know mobile service, uh, what we're finding is is more collaboration, more hunger for development of you know local skill, uh, more more hunger for uh, growth of of infrastructure and and uh, means to do what they do, and we've been able to deliver on that. So that's our biggest challenge. It's an ongoing challenge, um, and it is to be seen how that unfolds after coronavirus. But I can say that um, it's it's definitely had an impact and will have a sustained impact on how we do what we do. Well, thank you for saying that. And, you know, when it comes to funding, you've already kind of touched on it, but I've had other guests on my show who point out that charitable giving overall is down, domestically speaking, you know, in the United States. I know you're calling in from Norway, by the way, which is kind of fun. Uh, first call from Norway. Now, organizations that have a humanitarian focus here stateside in the United States are doing okay. Uh, they're serving on the front lines with the COVID crisis, and so therefore they've not seen necessarily a downward trend. In fact, some many humanitarian nonprofits are seeing an uptick in donations, including the, the one I lead. Uh, we have two food pantries and several other things that are very emergency-related and COVID response-related, and we've definitely seen an increase in giving. Now, having said that, uh, what I've read, and I've not done an exhaustive research on this, but my, my initial the few articles I've read is that organizations that are working internationally have seen a downturn in giving. And I'm not sure if because people, it feels just too far away and there's so many issues just right here in the United States uh, to just deal with. And so they just don't feel like they have enough money to stretch and give to an international organization. But I don't know if that's fully the case. And I was curious for you, from what I understand, you're getting a lot of your support, not all of it, but a lot of your support from U.S. supporters. Are you seeing a downturn in giving, not just for your organization, but across the board with international nonprofits like your own? And if so, is there something we need to do? Like, does, does international global nonprofits, do they need to retool their charitable giving and their development strategy? What you're describing is what my team felt was a threat back in March. We felt that um, because of of this threat and because of, you know, the consequences of job loss and financial hardship that there would be a decrease in support. Um, we were completely blown away by the opposite of that. There has been a constant increase in support for the work that we do coming from the United States. As I've talked with my team about this, there's a couple of reasons we believe that that is happening. One are the reasons that you've talked about with, you know, that we are providing a life or death kind of relationship to people who suffer in war zones. That's something that we can identify with and it's concrete. Um, but another reason is that we've been doing this for 26 years and, and um, there's a degree of loyalty to uh, to our work. And, 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 and I think that because of that relationship, the relationship we've nurtured over all these years of, of working together, that perhaps people think um, of all the things that I'm going to stop doing or cut back on, this is the thing that's going to go last. I'm going to stick together with these guys because they're, you know, they've proven themselves and I believe in them. Um, 
And and then one other reason that we've thought of that possibly answers why we have grown over the summer instead of had a stagnant period is just because it seems like people are home more and maybe more in touch with the media that's going out there, more observant of the media, uh, watching the news more closely and connecting that to to what is posted by groups like ours. Um, so these are a few of the reasons why we, you know, in our an- analysis, think that that answers why we've done well. To put it simply, though, uh, we have not um, lost supporters. We've we've been amazed by the generosity and even the new supporters that have joined our team since coronavirus started. You know, I'm really glad to hear that. I am. That's interesting. You're pleasantly surprised. I'm pleasantly surprised because I think that's the trend that I've been hearing about. So way to go. Number one, I think you said something very interesting that you have had a track record. You've been doing this for a long time. You have great trust. People know when they give to you where it goes. So kudos to you that, you know, you've built that trust over time. And obviously donors are still responding to that, even in the midst of a crisis, that they're still giving to you. So I'm really glad to hear that, actually. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Now, when it comes to nonprofits that are serving in countries internationally, again, do you anticipate any kind of, like, because of the crisis situation that is not just in the United States, again, this is a worldwide pandemic, are there other things that you think that they should change the way they lead their organizations or even, again, it sounds like fundraising has been great for you overall and it's been working okay, but do you kind of anticipate anything else they need to change in order to continue to sustain that? Because my guess is you have more needs than ever right now that you need to address and perhaps um, you're, again, you're doing well, but maybe some other nonprofits, uh, their giving is stabilized or again, maybe they have gone down a bit. Talk about maybe long-term strategy. Do you sense or are you sensing in your own organization Organization, do you need to change some things up and change the way you're leading? I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that. And I think that there are adaptations that we'll all have to make in light of uh, what's happening now and what is to come. And it may be that we still face greater challenges and setbacks because, you know, the coronavirus pandemic doesn't dissipate as quickly as we hope and but I guess what I would say I can say what my team has agreed to and that is that um, this is a great reminder you know the the loyalty and trust of people is is a sacred gift and this event is a great reminder of that and um, has has really reinforced to us the importance of being and staying personal with people and celebrating the partnership as you know a um, as something that can't be done without both parties. It's um, one without the other simply won't work. So we've gone from uh, we've done a lot less um, broadcasting of uh, form letters, direct mail, thank yous. In fact, we've completely stopped our direct mail stuff. Um, our thank yous are, to the degree that we have capacity for it, are personal and often handwritten. And making intentional steps towards connecting with people personally as frequently as we are able to, to keep the impacts that we're making together both 
you know, factually and, and physically real to them, but also emotionally evident so that they can, so their blood, their blood can broil with us and want to stand up against the tyranny that is, you know, robbing millions of children of lives and many different ways, often intentional potential. So, yeah, I guess that would be my answer, um, Rob, that being as personal as possible is, and being as thankful as possible is, is now more important than ever. Well, thank you for, you know, delving into these topics. You do a really important work. It's really difficult work. So thanks for all you're doing. I'm guessing my listeners may want to find out more about what you do. How can people find out more about you and the work that you do at Partners? Yeah, we're on, you know, we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Partners Relief and Development or Partners Relief on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, our, our media is updated every day or two. And, um, and then my personal page, which generally is a reflection of what I do with editorial comment is, uh, Steve Gamer. That's my first and last name. Uh, if you search those, you'll find them and, I encourage you to do that. I encourage your listeners to do that and uh, come along for the ride. Well, that's excellent, Steve. Again, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for all the work you do and keep up the good work. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. We're excited to have Aplos as the sponsor of this nonprofit podcast. And what's unique about Aplos is that they are dedicated not only to providing you with the best tools, but also to offering free training from their in-house experts and CPAs. Right now, you can get access to a solid webinar on five essential financial reports for nonprofit leaders. To get access, go to nonprofit.aplos.com. Hey friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.